Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. The Red Sox are fucking garbage. <laughs> what is going on, guys? And welcome to episode 15 of the Spider Scoop podcast presented by ESPN Richmond. As always, I'm your host, Noah Goldberg, with ESPN Richmond, and I'm joined by my co host. He's a struggling Charlotte Hornets fan, minor league baseball hat collector, but most importantly, Writes about the Spiders for a 10 talk, and that's Austin Daisy. Today, we're joined by Kevin Sweeney, the founder of College Basketball Central and a co host of the CBB Central podcast. Kevin joins us to talk all things Richmond basketball, A10 basketball. Uh, he helps us break down the non conference schedule for the Spiders a little bit. We talk about what this fall could look like due to COVID and other things. Really great stuff. Kevin gave us some awesome insight, and we really had a lot of fun with this one. Um, I think you guys are going to really enjoy it. So with that being said, Kevin Sweeney. Today we have on a very special guest. He is the host of the College Basketball Central podcast and founder of the site, Kevin Sweeney. Kevin, what's going on, man? Thanks for hopping on. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, man. Uh, how's the uh, how's the summer been for you? I know, uh, obviously, you're a college student. You've been home covering uh, college basketball. It's been a weird off season to uh, be a media member right now. Yeah, it's it's been it's been an interesting one. I think the challenge has been really since since quarantine began. You know, there's there's less reason for me not to be on Twitter, and there's simultaneously less reason to be on Twitter. So I'm yeah. just consuming, you know mass amounts of garbage uh, and which has been exciting and kind of you know duking it out about you know the virus and duking about basketball and just trying to remind myself that twitter isn't always real life but uh, otherwise man it's it's been fun and i'm yeah i'm just hopeful we can get get it going here and, and do some some sort of normal college basketball season so that's what we all live for yeah twitter has always been the ultimate cesspool for people having opinions about things no one wants to hear about and now everyone's stuck at home with a lot more things to have opinions about it has just been the ultimate the perfect storm of honestly twitter fingers and it's been great and it's been bad we've all we've all experienced it um where where were you back uh back in march i like to talk to people you know who are in the media covering college hoops you know i i had a very kind of significant specific moment when you know sports were kind of canceled that whole domino effect do you remember where you were at uh when that all kind of fell down yeah it was it was pretty crazy so the first weekend of conference tournaments which went off with mostly out of hitch i was actually in indianapolis with northwestern's women's basketball team i was broadcasting their games at the big 10 tournament so like, we were, like going out to bars after games like hanging out like there was no yeah. in the world uh, and all of a sudden, you know, you start, you start hearing things, oh, you know, we're going to do it out, do it out fans, whatever, you know, I'm still in school. I'm still, I'm still grinding away. And so we, we were actually in finals. So, so we're on a quarter system. So that week that everything got canceled was like my finals, week, which just oh. complicated things even more. Uh, yeah. I had a flight Thursday morning scheduled to fly to Atlantic city and cover the Mac tournament. Uh, and I decided Wednesday night when Rudy Gobert got, got Corona that, that it was not the move to, to hop on yeah. that. And, and I'm glad I did. But that was a absolute whirlwind week, whirlwind 48 hours between, you know, the Gobert stuff, uh, you know, eventually the tournament getting canceled. And then just kind of like sitting sitting in your apartment with, with nothing to do and just like I kept like refreshing the sports apps and like I would open them and see there was nothing and be really, really sad. Uh, it was just, it was brutal, man. 
Yeah. Yeah. It was absolutely crazy. And Austin, I've talked about it on here, but we were both lined up to go to, uh, to go to Brooklyn for the, for the tournament. And luckily Austin, Austin, you didn't actually end up going to New York at all. Right. You, you got to stay in Virginia. No, something like prior to all this, like virus stuff, something told me to move my flight to Friday instead of Thursday. And if I would have left on Thursday, I'd have been there to watch, what was it, Fordham and St. Joe's, the last A-10 game of the season. So I saved myself from not only that, but but from staying away from all the chaos that was up in New York that weekend. Yeah, I don't I don't know, Kevin, if you're aware, but um, in the kind of A-10 Twitter community, the, uh, the Wednesday game where we have the lowest seeds has been dubbed the uh, Wednesday night pillow fight. So uh, luckily, shout out the Spiders for going uh, kind of from worst to first and not being in the Wednesday, because that saved us both a, a, a trip to New York. Well, I was there, but I was able to get out early, luckily. Um, but yeah, it was a, what a, what a weird time, man. I think as soon as that Gobert stuff hit, we all just like, you just had this gut feeling. Like you knew everything was going downhill. Yeah, I will. So the Gobert stuff hit, I was like, there's no way we can, we can do this, right? And then I mm-hmm. woke up Thursday and like everything hadn't been canceled yet. And I was like, okay, maybe we're going to try. And I had yeah. this in the back of my mind that like no conference would cancel their conference tournament other than the Ivy League because mm-hmm. they make sure they like filled their NCAA bids like everyone would fill the bids and then like by Sunday like things would be too bad to like actually do anything so they make the mm-hmm. bracket and they would just hold off till May and then mm-hmm. like obviously that became apparent that it could not happen by like noon but I mean that was that was the mm-hmm. craziness at the time it was like every hour something you know bonkers would change you're like mm-hmm. holy cow I mean yeah like that Saturday, Rick Pitino gets the Iona job, just like mi- middle of. <laughs> it was just, it was just the most ridiculous like week of, of my life, probably. Yeah, when you look back and you think about all the stuff that happened, you feel like it was like a one two week span. Then you look back and you're like, oh, this all this shit went down in like forty eight hours, literally every little bit. It was the longest longest two days ever. Um. So yeah. So obviously, you know, I I, I we don't want to keep this all COVID talks. We do want to be positive and talk some college hoops, but. I think we'd be ignorant not to at least talk a little bit about what this fall could look like. So we know it's not going to be normal. Um, obviously the, the kind of MLB baseball world's been, been shocked with this whole Marlins outbreak. Um, today, the athletic reported four more cases on the Marlins. So I think, I believe that brings our total to about 17. So it's about half, a little bit over half their roster has been infected. But also the, on the flip side, no one on the Phillies has tested positive. And that was actually something I saw you tweeting about saying, yes, this is obviously bad. But at the end of the day, if it's contained to the Marlins, we can see that this is a doable thing that it, that is contained and isn't being a risk outside of the Marlins. So when you look at it in sports, you know, I, I think baseball is a better example for college basketball than the NBA or TBT because it's not a bubble and we know we can't do that. How does this impact college basketball? Does it not affect it? Was this something we expected anyways? You know, how do you see this, you know, kind of playing a role? Yeah, I think – First and foremost, like things need to go well before college football starts playing so that college football can start playing and then college basketball, if things go well, college football can start playing. Like it, it's this hierarchy of things that, that need to happen. Um, and that's not to say that everything has to be perfect, right? Like it was inevitable that at some point there was going to be a team outbreak, maybe not 17 guys that the Marlins have, but there was going to be, you know, 5, 10, 12 guys and you were going to have to deal with that. And so like, I don't think the MLB has looked very prepared throughout this. I think they've looked really – like, they've handled it poorly. Even if, like, nothing bad other than that Sunday game being played has really happened, like, they just seem like they haven't been out in front of it. And I think the biggest learning that, that commissioners throughout the country need to take is, like, we 
have this happen. Like this can't just be played out in the media like, oh, look, another positive test. That's what Andrew McCutcheon tweeting like, hey, yeah, we learned that our game got canceled on Twitter. Like, like that shouldn't be happening. And I think um, the lack of leadership in college sports makes it even more likely that, that these types of things will happen in, in college athletics. And I think the big frustration for me is that in late April, in May, and in June, once things were starting to look better, everyone in college athletics just kind of shrugged their shoulders. like, I guess things will be fine and didn't actually build real plans. They're like, all right, we'll bring the kids back to campus and I'm sure we'll have to test them a bunch and otherwise we'll just see what happens. And I still haven't seen a real plan. And so for me, the biggest frustration hasn't been, oh, we need to wait till January. Oh, we need to you know, wait until November. We need to wait until, there's no date. It, it, it's, it's either you wait until the virus is like completely under control, which who knows what will happen. Or you come in with an actual plan, you know, written down, preferably public, that everyone knows how to follow. And I think the biggest thing that, that I've been missing throughout this, I think that sets us up in some ways for failure, is the fact that there just hasn't been a plan. Um, now, that said, I'm, I'm optimistic, um, particularly because it seems like college football, after a week or two of just complete pessimism, has started to swing back the other way a little bit. Now, that could change, you know, by the time this thing is even published. Like this, this is just how it works. But um, I, I just think it's one at a time and baseball having a slow start is not the best news, but I don't think it is, you know, a killer by any means. Yeah. So, are you, so you're saying it's basically going to be a race this fall between Rob Manfred and Roger Goodell to see who's going to be the biggest fuck up across uh, sports commissioner leadership. I think that's the biggest race we're looking at right now. Right. Well, I think, I think Goodell has the advantage in that like, the NFL is just so powerful, they can do whatever the hell they want, right? Like, the NFL is going to play. They're not going to care who gets corona. They're going to they're gonna push through. And quite honestly, like, I think the NFL has handled this well, if nothing else, because, like, there really hasn't been a lot of controversy about it, right? Like, they've just been like, all right, we're playing. And people are like, I don't think you should. And they're like, we're going to play. Like, like there's just no fighting. I mean, there was the one day where the players were like, we need more protocols, and they squashed it quickly. Like, that – what you need is someone who just is like, we're doing this and we're pushing forward and these are the plans. And it feels like the NFL, with the exception of that one day, has been on top of things where baseball hasn't been. I worry that college football will start to align more with baseball than the NFL. Yeah. So if you were, if there was an all-encompassing, you know, NCAA commissioner, obviously there's not. If that's you, Kevin Sweeney, commissioner of the NCAA, and obviously, you know, like you said, that I think the, the detriment has been not that we're considering delaying things, but that there's no plan whether it is to go as normal or, or to delay, there is no plan. It's kind of a wait and see. There's been a lot of options floating there. Like we've said, do they do conference only? Do they do a delayed season of January with conference, without conference? A lot of options going around. If it was you, what do you think is the most logistical, logistically possible alternative scenario that is also going to effectively allow us to compare conferences? Because I personally, me and Austin have talked that we think, you know, the virus doesn't, infect you because you're only playing your conference opponent you know like we say in the a10 you know playing against kentucky for richmond is no further travel than it is to play at dayton conference non-conference so if it's you commissioner kevin what move are you making for the adjust adjusted season yeah it's, it's so so challenging because and i totally hear you on like the the travel components and things like that and it's real especially at lower levels of college basketball I'm not sure whether Richmond charters flights, but teams below Richmond certainly don't. Uh, and when you're not chartering flights, but you do have to fly, 
that's going to be something that that will look really bad for college administrators to be telling kids to fly commercial right now. It's just like the reality. Um, and so what I think the best model is, is some kind of like, the, let's not start until Thanksgiving. Let's let teams try to play their tournaments that they would normally play around Thanksgiving and then leave December open to whatever you want. So if you're a league like the Big Ten, I've heard some things, like, you know, it's not, it's not like done by any means, but the Big Ten is very in on the idea of conference only everything. They just want to control everything. They want to be able to have, you know, protocols in place so kids can stay on the opposing team's campus if the kid tests positive, like all of these different protocols that, that would be in place that conference only allows them. So let's say the Big Ten decides we want to play conference only. Okay, they could play like 25 games out of a bunch of games in December. Um, but let's say the A10 decides, okay, well, we want to play we want to play some non-conference games. Well, then December would be open to, you know, Richmond could play teams that are within driving distance, you know, um, you know, maybe North Carolina, maybe in the state of Virginia, you know, UMass could play Siena and Fordham could play Manhattan and Dayton could play Cincinnati. And like all of these things would work out because you're playing drivable games. And so it'd just be a flexible month. And then you try to play as much of a normal conference season as possible in January, hoping that things have kind of continued to progress in a positive direction. My other like weird plan that I don't know if it would ever gain traction would be to essentially treat the entire season the way the Ivy League treats conference games, which is you only play on Fridays and Saturdays. And so what you would essentially do is you would be able to set like a weekly testing protocol and you could test one, let's say on Wednesday and then travel day like Thursday or Friday, and then you'd play Friday and maybe Friday and Saturday, if you could play, fit two games regionally in one thing, and just limiting contacts as much as possible, making things regimented, and just playing as much as you could. If you could play one game a week, if you started in November, you'd play like 18 games. If you played mm. games a week, or sometimes one, you could play 25 to 30, and that would be ideal. Um, so mm. I, th I think the biggest things are just flexibility, limiting you know, some of the harder travel, and then making sure that if you're going to play non-conference games, being able to set some protocols, whether that's testing protocols, travel protocols, uh, et cetera, because there's a lot that goes into it beyond just, oh, well, it's, you know, 150 miles. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, like you said, I think there is no one right answer because there are just so many unknowns and so many variables, both geographically, logistically, because there's just so many more college teams than there is, you know, in a 30-team professional league. But I think it, what we can all agree on is especially from a mid-major perspective and from a Richmond perspective is that there needs to be some semblance of a non-conference. And I, I've floated the idea. I've almost said, you know, what if you did a conference, only, not a conference only, but you actually started with conference play in January, bumped the tournament back, and then did your non-conference after? Because obviously some teams, you know, such as a Dayton versus a Richmond can be far in conference. But for the most part, you tend to be often closer to your conference only team. So play those games first, and then you can push it back and reschedule it. But because when we look, you know, I don't know how aware you are with the Richmond uh, non-conference schedule, but you know, they've, they've developed probably their strongest non-conference schedule in quite a few years. They've got at Kentucky, they've got at Cincinnati, Northern Iowa, a lot of good games. And, you know, we've seen a team like them last year that by the end of the season kind of went from a, you know, okay mid-major to team that people thought could get an at-large bid, you know, before their conference tournament was canceled. That Wisconsin game propelled them, you know, tremendously. So, so those are big games. So I, I don't know what you think on that, but I think that there has to be a non-conference because how would you compare you know how do you compare an a10 to a big 10 if they never play each other and there's only a conference schedule yeah no it's 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 at the top of mind for a lot of people particularly people in, in your position you know in, as at Richmond a place where you have a legit chance at an at-large bid 
Um, and I think what would create, what would you create if there was no, no non-conference would essentially your preseason standing would be so, so important, right? Like, like Richmond, because they'd come in with buzz could go, you know, 16 and two in the A-10, an 18 game A-10 schedule and get in a problem, not just because that's like a really good A-10 mark, but also because there was some, some preseason buzz. Um, and it would, I, I think, yeah, the last year thing in the preseason of this year would, would give you a lot more. But I, I definitely agree. I think it's really important that we do some kind of non-conference games. Uh, it might have to be really flexible. It might just have to be like, hey, you know, we'll play, we'll play Virginia Tech this year. We'll play Virginia this year. And, you know, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe you don't get to play Kentucky. Maybe you don't get to travel as much as you would normally. But I think the good thing is that there's going to be a desire from everyone to play. Right, like everyone's gonna want to play games and fill spots, and so it's not like 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 even if Richmond's great non-conference schedule gets teared up, like so is everyone else's. So there will be mm-hmm. games to play, and I think just the end goal has to be finding yourself as many opportunities as possible. I think yeah, done that so far. We'll see if that sticks. Yeah, and I, I like your idea too of starting with a lot of those invitationals closer to Thanksgiving. So you look at a team like Dayton last year, and you can say that the Maui Invitational—that's what propelled them. You know. Obi Toppin versus Yudoka as a like that kind of put Dayton on the map. And I think, you know, at a lower level, same can be said for Richmond. I'm in the Legends Classic. Um, so I guess to kind of get out into some more positive waters, you know, assuming, you know, the season is played, um, like we said, you know, the big one that all the Richmond fans are looking at is Richmond versus Kentucky. It's a strong schedule, but that's the highlight for them. Um, I, I, you're obviously very aware of, you know, it's a, it's a major recruiting class for Kentucky. They've got BJ Boston, Terrence Clark coming in. Um, I think that'll be a really intriguing matchup because they're two very different teams. Richmond obviously is an all, all senior starting five. They've got, you know, you can spread the floor perimeter come and experience Kentucky on the other hand, pretty much is for the most part made up of freshmen. Um, obviously, you know, they're, they're waiting to see on uh, who is it? The eligibility of is it Olivier Saar, I believe, right. Coming in. Yeah, so they're yeah. kind of waiting to see on that. Um, but they don't have a lot of guys coming back from that team last year. So I don't know what your thoughts are in comparing, you know, the, kind of young gun, five-star, blue bud, top recruiting class versus, you know, more experienced mid-major like Richmond? Yeah, I mean, it's it's an awesome game. I mean, I give credit to, to Coach Cal for, for giving Richmond the opportunity to play this type of game because it's very easy. Um, like, there will be SEC games that will be much less difficult than playing Richmond, not just because Richmond's a really talented team, but also just, like, stylistically, the way that they play, the veteran nature, like – if I'm if I'm if I'm coaching a bunch of freshmen, the last thing I want to do is face a team running a bunch of Princeton concepts that's you know playing four or five seniors, right? Like that's just that's dangerous for me if I'm Coach Cal. So I give him credit for playing yeah. the team. Um, they're 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 absurdly talented, right? Like that's the bottom line. And Boston and Clark are are tremendous tremendous talents. Boston, I think, is going to be a you know 18 a game scorer if he wants to be. Clark backs the game in a multitude of ways. Um, you know, I think the front court, you know, you mentioned Saar needing that waiver. Um, but, you know, they'll still be really, really athletic, even without him. They have Isaiah Jackson, who's from Michigan, who's a really athletic kid. Um, he'll play the five for them, probably, assuming that uh, Saar didn't get that waiver, although pretty much everyone's getting the waiver right now. Um, so so we'll see. I mean, I'm honestly not going not gonna to come out here with a hot take and say that the Richmond takes the game because it's, it's difficult to get rough and it's difficult to play against that type of talent. But... Yeah. It, it has all of the makings of, of what would be a really, really fun upset. Yeah, 
Yeah, I think I think you said stylistically, like that's a great point because you look at, um, you know, this team, honestly, outside of BJ Boston, it's a very talented athletic team. Like we said, it's not a team that's going to, you know, light you up from outside. They're not spreading the floor, raining threes. And you look at Richmond and and they're pretty much, you know, pretty much everyone on the floor for the most part can hit an, hit an open three. Nate KO is not really a threat. We've seen Grant Golden hit a few outside, but they move, like you said, they move the ball so fast. That's going to be mayhem for for Kentucky defensively. But at the end of the day, talent does speak. Um, so I think, like you said, that'll be a really fun one. Um, but I do think it bodes well for Richmond because I find that I'd be shocked if there's fans in the building, right? So so when you think about in terms of fans or no fans, Richmond goes into Kentucky. If there's no fans in the building, you're basically playing a neutral site game, which is only going to make it that much more challenging for a young Kentucky team that's not going to have that crowd energy behind them. So I think that's another you know little COVID niche issue that could potentially benefit a team like that. It's possible. It's 100% possible. Um, yeah. My guess, based on the, like, SEC football push, just, like, if SEC plays football, there will be fans of football games, and if there's fans of football games, if I have some fans of basketball games, it definitely won't be a full house, and that helps, right? Like, like the most intimidating thing is, you know, not that A-10 atmospheres aren't really tough, but, like, yeah. it's a different beast playing at Kentucky or playing at Duke. And I think, like, you know, just any, any edge you can get is huge, and just any little, like, energy thing. I want to say, isn't this game, like, over Christmas break? Yeah, I think it's – is it November? Yeah, because the, the Cincinnati game is in December, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think so it's I mean, November 23rd. Yeah, that contributes to it, too. So it's like, it again, all the makers. I mean, if, if you wanted to draw up, like, what is the, the nightmare matchup mid-major-wise for Kentucky, I think it probably would be rich. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think – so I, I would say – I don't know what you think, Austin. I'd say the next big one that you circle on there is probably the Cincinnati game. Um, I, I think that'll be another fun one, too, because you look at Richmond and Cincinnati are two extremely up-tempo teams. Um, so I think that's going to be a good one. Um, obviously, a lot depends on – is Keith Williams is still in the draft process, right? He hasn't decided he's coming back to Cincinnati? I, I, I don't know off the top of my head, but I, I would make all assumptions that he's back. He's not going anywhere. Yeah. So, so they have Keith Williams coming back. Obviously, you have Amanaskis is going to be, you know, eligible. Chris Boat's coming back. Um, and, and that, you know, that could be an issue for Richmond because this is a team that has struggled with um, physical teams before. We saw them, you know, really get worked at home by St. Louis last year. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on both that playing against a big, you know, such as Boat and also Richmond struggles with physical big teams. Because I think there's kind of a, a you know, I, I think there's a misrepresentation uh, of that because sure, they struggle with the size and the physicality, but we've seen them have success against teams with strong big man presence. We've seen them work George Mason, obviously not the same team as Cincinnati, but a guy with, you know, A.J. Wilson, a guy that's a beast on the boards. You know, we saw them play great against Wisconsin. Nate Reavers had 17 and 17, but, you know, he shot 6 of 14 from the floor. Um, Nick Popovich obviously not had a down year for Boston College, but they did great against him. Cyril Langevin didn't have a good game for URI. So I think potentially that they could actually have success against teams with these large low post seven foot presences I think it's more of a team like a St. Louis that's going to play you physical across the five positions that gives them trouble yeah I think you make an excellent point there that I think it's overlooked a lot and it's it's that be having a good rebounder or a good big does not make you a big physical team mm -hmm. and you know St. Louis is the definition of a like, big physical team and obviously French is that guy but mm -hmm that's not always the case and so I think you know that that's always something to watch and Cincinnati is is a really interesting team kind of in transition where 
Vogt wasn't recruited by Mick Cronin. He was recruited by John Brandon, went to Northern Kentucky, transferred to follow him. Um, but Cincinnati's roster was built from Mick Cronin, tough-minded team. And that's not to say that John Brandon's teams aren't tough, but it's just different, right? And so as Cincinnati kind of transitions who they are and their, their identity, I think um, – I think it will be interesting to see how they, they come out of the Jaron Cumberland era. Um, Williams will be key. Um, stopping vote will be, will be the number one and they'll, they'll be able to play that, that too big look with vote and Ripple Savinowski as the guy that you know, was playing the five at, at um, Colgate probably will play mostly four as a stretch big. Uh, we'll see if he sh- his shooting rebounds after struggling from deep last season. Uh, the, the, depth of this team in Cincinnati will be how good their guards can be. If their guards live up to the, to the billing, and I love Mike Saunders, the kid they have coming in from Wasatch Academy in Utah. We'll see if they can get a waiver for David Julius from uh, Michigan. If they get some of those guys going, they have a chance to be really special. Zach Harvey's guy in red shirt, who's better than red shirt, fairly plays six foot five, really athletic wing. So thin in the backcourt, unless some of these guys come and put it together. And I think you know, again, for a similar person that really shoots it, that, that presents some problems. So um, another another really nice matchup to see how Richmond handles things. But again, but playing against a team that plays two true bigs will be an interesting test, without a doubt. Yeah, definitely. And like we said, we saw St. Louis, who's already a physical team on its own, but they had a guy, you know, Jimmy Jimmy Bell, who was a freshman big man for them last year that was starting a lot of games, but, you know, he played like 10, kind of Aaron Baines, like 10, 14 minutes a game type start. But against Richmond, he had like 25, 25 minutes, and they were playing him beside French, something that they weren't doing a lot throughout the season because we saw, you know, put two true big men in the, in, in the post against Richmond, and they can struggle because, you know, Nate Ko certainly improved his defense. I think that's something me and Austin have said a lot on here is if you look at his start to non-conference last year by the end of conference play, he had made incredible strides in the low post. But at the end of the day, you know, he's 6'7", he's like 220. He's not, a, he's not a big, you know, strong guy down there. He can definitely get pushed around. and. We know Grant Golden for as many strides as he made, you know, the same can be said. Um, so when we, you know, as we look on, um, you know, obviously recruiting has been really active this summer and it's been a much different um, summer in terms of this virtual recruiting guys have been able to make visits. Um, Richmond, so Richmond's recently got, they got a late commit, um, a guy named Jamon Bailey, who was obviously the Wake Forest commit, you know, the whole Steve Forbes thing happened, decommits, comes to Richmond. And a big way they were able to get him is because, you know, ba- Bailey decommits and all of a sudden he can't go visit other major schools, but Richmond, he had visited before they had been in on him, gives him an advantage to get him off the rebound. So I think you're seeing, you know, because these guys can make these visits to these big schools, you know, we've seen Eric Reynolds has got power five offers, hasn't been able to visit them. How do you think COVID and not making these visits is impacting recruiting and maybe more specifically at the mid-major level? Yeah, I think it's a few things. For one, like you mentioned, the familiarity is huge. So not only does that, you know, reward just recruiting, but it also rewards early recruiting and mm-hmm. not waiting until the spring and saying, oh, well, we need a wing now. Um, I think that, that, that for sure has been a benefit. Now, the other thing is, you know, programs that rely heavily on just like showing up at Peach Jam and plucking which kids they want, you know, they haven't had that luxury this year. And quite frankly, as a mid-major, that isn't a bad thing. Because if you ask a lot of mid-major coaches, I think you know, whatever they say on the outside, they don't love Peach Jam. They don't love the fact 
that they have their kid lined up that they know they like, that they're going to sit there and watch, and they would take regardless of how they play a pitch jam. But if the kid plays well, you know, now, now the kid gets two high major offers and he's, he's gone. And, that, and that's the game, unfortunately. And so I think, you know, you hear a lot of uh, jokes about like, oh, you know, we're rooting for our kid to stink and beat you. And, but that's just reality. And so uh, there will be some guys that, that fall through the cracks a little bit. Um, now, will that be erased eventually by a one-time transfer rule that will increase transfers? It's possible, but I, I figure get them on campus and see what happens, right? I mean, the worst thing that happens is you have a kid that plays so well for two years that he can move up to any level, ever, any level he wants. So in some ways, it's a benefit to mid-majors who are already kind of limiting their travel budgets, limiting, you know, different things. But at the same time, everybody wants to get on the road. And the best, you know, the, the best way for, for a mid-major to find those under-the-radar guys is by you know, going out and seeing more people and just grinding more. And so when you can't do that, that that's a challenge for sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think it's only been beneficial for them. We look at, you know, we, Austin knows we just got a guy, um, a, a freshman. He's going to be a senior this year. In high school, Malcolm Dredd, uh, who committed and I, I believe went to Bullis. And he um, was a guy that basically was playing behind, was a starter, getting like five points a game. So he was playing behind three guys going to power five schools who were seniors. You know, you look at that, that's the kind of guy that you could be like, oh, you know, maybe maybe his senior year is a you showcase. That guy's going to field some more offers. He was playing for team takeover. But, you know, COVID happens. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He doesn't know if he's going to have a high school season. He commits to Richmond and who knows, maybe he has a senior year and he goes off and now Richmond's getting a guy that's going to be getting those power five offers. So I, I think that has been really interesting. But but you mentioned the one-time uh, transfer, which we're already seeing anyways. Half these guys are getting immediate eligibility. Um, how, how do you think that could potentially impact college basketball and how detrimental could that be to, to these mid-majors? I don't think it's like the apocalypse that everyone wants to, to frame it as, partially because like they, it's like a fun story to say like how like, college basketball is getting ruined. I like, guess it's not fun, but it's a thing that people like. People really like writing theory of college basketball. It's very strange. Um, but I think it will reemphasize that if you're a – a mid-major program, the most important thing you can do is provide Yeah, so uh, that's one of two times my Wi-Fi cut out during this interview. Um, shout out to Kevin for bearing with us through this, but yeah, that, that kind of cut out there. So we're going to patch him back in. It's going to sound a little off, but yep, shout out technology. So I, mean, I think bottom line is you're probably going to lose a few more guys. I'm not sure I buy that it's going to be an apocalypse. I also think there's a chance to get some benefit. You know, you get a kid with, you know, one or two years left who wants to play a little bit more, kind of like, you know, a high major kid with grad transfer down. You just mm-hmm. get one of those. Maybe that helps you a little bit. Maybe you get a kid after one year, you know, Richmond's recruiting that kid, and then all of a sudden he gets that high major offer at Peach Jam, and he, he commits to that high major, and then after a year he realizes he's never playing, and so he comes down. So maybe that benefits you a little bit. But, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't think it would be earth-shattering just because, like, I go through rosters every year, and every year there's more and more – guys on every team that have been transferred already transferred like it's, it's just kind of where we're at already yeah yeah definitely i mean look, look at Derek thornton he's played for like 35 different ncaa teams um the best you, one is, yeah the best one is is lyric schreiner he just went in the portal today he began his career at tcu in 2015 so he played in perry ellis buddy heel george niang monty morris and he transferred after one year sat out the year played one year at Cal State Northridge, then grad transferred with two years of eligibility left to DePaul. Played one year on their CBI runner-up team, then sat out this year because he was just never going to play. 
and now he's apparently in the grad transfer portal again. <laughs> For a doctorate? I mean, I have no idea what's going on. But. He just loves college too much. He just can't get away. That was funny you said Perry Ellis at the beginning too. I was like, this guy is basically just like Perry Ellis, except he's actually still playing because Perry Ellis is just in college basketball forever. Um, <laughs> when when you look at when we look at the A10 this year, obviously they kind of you know had a rebound season last year. I think even without you know Obi coming back, that it's going to be a deep league. Dayton's going to be good. Richmond's going to be good. St. Louis is going to be good. You know, assuming we've got a normal season, you know how how many how many bids can you see you know this league getting and and how strong of a year do you think it could have? It's it's a big big question. I think I think three is a good target again. Mm-hmm. Um, just just kind of realistically where the landscape is. There's a lot of like boomer bust teams that I think is really mm-hmm. you have UMass who is this kind of incredible X factor where you have the best player in the league in Trey Mitchell, but you know a lot of work to do around him with young guys to see how they they pan out. You have URI, which you don't know what's going to happen with waivers, but the talent is certainly there. You have VCU. Yep in an interesting spot. I love bottom interest team. And then one of the boomer bust team, I think is GW. I think mm-hmm. GW has a chance to be sneaky good in year two, especially if they, if they, if they can get a wa- waiver for James Bishop, who is transferring in from LSU, will play point guard and be like a, per- their perfect, like Jamie Christian spread ball screen point guard. Mm-hmm. They're going to have a shooters around a big man and a shoot and a point guard. And I think that would be dangerous. So like, the league has a chance to be really deep, which mm-hmm. isn't always a good sign for at-large bids, especially without a non-conference where like, the last thing you want is to get picked off in a road game, you know, at GW because that would hurt a Richmond's at large hopes, even if GW is not that bad a team. So the, the fine line that every mid-major league walks is how do you have a good enough league where you have a bunch of competitive teams and teams that can compete for postseason bids without being, you know, bad enough that, you know, you, you want wins, but you don't want chances of bad losses, but you don't want a bunch of hard games. You can't rack up wins. It's this like, weird weird puzzle and yeah. so i think you know the, the big I, I think three bits is a reasonable target but um the league is really really going to be fun from top to top to almost bottom you know four in this forum so who who are those three bids and who are your top four you think would get a buy a double buy in the a10 tournament so i think the bids if i had to do it today would be richmond dayton and st louis and then I would have Bonaventure fourth preseason, I think would be how it, and then Duquesne and UMass by fighting out fifth and sixth, VCU would be like this X factor, six, seven, and then kind of roll from there. Yeah, I'm really glad too you didn't mention any of your like sleepers kind of borderline teams. Thank you for not being the guy who's like, Kellen Grady, he could have been a lottery pick. Oh, is it going to be Davidson's year again? We heard it all throughout last year. When are they going to click? I'm so sick of it. Like, Davidson, like, I'm done on Bob McKillop. He's got dementia. Like, the guy needs to retire. I'm done with Davidson. They, they have no presence down low. They have no physicality. Like, I'm, I'm done with it. I'm so out and waiting. I, I, I still don't understand how Davidson was a quad one win for Richmond last year, but thank God it was. Yeah, no, Bob McKillop had had it after the game. Uh, this year against us, sitting outside on the curb. Oh yeah, well I'm gonna I'm gonna put this in the promo and I'm putting the picture. There's a fantastic photo I think someone got. It's Bob McKillop sitting right outside the Robin Center on the curb with just like his head down like this. It is just phenomenal content. That that's fantastic. That reminds me of so there was so at Northwestern two years ago, DePaul was playing Northwestern, and DePaul was up by 15 in the second half. And they gave up a 24-0 run and lost. Uh, and then you saw Dave Leto 
I was like walking out of the gym post game, like 20 minutes out of the game. And Dave Leto is just like wandering the streets of, of Evanston, just like walking around. We're like, did the guy get like Wayne Kiffin? Like, well, absolutely. <laughs> any any post coach content is, is really the best. Oh, absolutely electric. It's our favorite part. Um, so, so yeah, obviously, you know, we said kind of the top of the league. I think, you know, pretty much everyone can agree it's kind of St. Louis, Richmond, maybe Dayton in there in, in some order um, in your top three. But I really like that you mentioned Rhode Island. Cause like we said, it's a roster that's loaded with talent, but totally shook up from last year. Depends on, you know, some of those transfer guys' eligibilities. Um, you know, Fats Russell, I, I think we can all probably assume he's back at, back at Rhode Island this year. Um, I think that's a really interesting, intriguing matchup. You know, what, what depend, whoever's eligible, that'll be a fun matchup for, for Richmond. And obviously the big comparison is always, you know, it was a whole debate throughout the year. Would you rather have Fats Russell or would you rather have Jacob Gilliard? And I think that, yeah, there are very similar players in certain aspects that the steals, the defense, flashy, exciting, they can both score a lot. But they're also different in other aspects too because you have a guy like Fats Russell that's very on and off, can score, can rip off 35 points and is also going to, have a, a three-point game. I think Gilliard especially settled into conference play. We saw his scoring dip this year in conference play, especially compared to last year. I think he lost four or five points off his average, but, you know, his win shares went up. His usage was still high. It was just a deep roster that was – he was just distributing the ball a lot more. Um, wh- how do you compare those two guards? Who would you rather have on your team? How do you look at them differently? Um, what, what are your thoughts on those comparisons? Yeah, it's fascinating because – you already had this like John Rothstein created Crutcher versus Fats thing, and then you have like the Gilliard versus Fats thing. Um, I mean, Fats is probably gonna take 30 shots a game this year. And maybe that gets gets diminished a little bit by the fact that, you know, maybe they have some waivers, like a Malik Martin gets a waiver. Uh, Jalen Carey getting a waiver would be the really big one to like relieve the load a little bit. But, like his use would be astronomical. Whereas like Gilliard doesn't have to be the leading scorer or even the second leading scorer on, on this Richmond team. He can just kind of sit back and make plays and defend and do what he does. And when he has to go get hit a shot, he can do it. And I think, you know, the comparison where he'll still have that core around him, but then Crutcher will be now the alpha dog at Dayton. Fats will become even more of an alpha dog at Rhode Island. The point guard battles will be, will be a lot of fun. I think, I think Crutcher is my guy but Gilliard would probably be number two. And then I'm battling it out between Fats and, uh, and Kyle Lofton, uh, who I love. Fantastic player. Uh, yeah. Third point guard spot. Were you surprised to see Tyrese Martin transfer out of Rhode Island after it seemed like he was really kind of breaking out there, could have been in line for a big season this year? I was surprised at what every, at everything that happened. Right? Like, the thing <laughs> about, it's, what's scary is, so like, yeah, they're bringing a lot of talent, but – Whenever something like the amount of movement they've had in the last year and a half happens, there's something going on. Yeah. I don't know exactly what it is, but like something is not right. Where you know Martin leaving is one thing, right? It's fine to lose a guy who can transfer up, like that happens. But you also lose guys, you know, mid-season. I mean, Dana Tate, I think, was in trouble, but he goes to Siena. That's a really good program. He's going to play a lot. Toppin is like really like inexplicable. Where even a star, you know, Muriel Mating was a guy that you know shows up, never winds up playing a game, like. You're, you're having too many departures of guys who were going to play and were playing minutes to not have something be wrong. So, you know, is it in a vacuum surprising that Tyrese Martin would leave? Not super surprising. I think you hope that as a program like your eye, you're above losing guys going up, but it happens. But it's surprising to see the confluence of all of those things happening. 
Yeah, it's got to make you wonder what that player-coach relationship is like when you see, you know, that many guys transferring out totally. And you also got to wonder, too, you know, if guys were turned off by the fact, you know, the way Sierra Landervine season went, if guys kind of saw that and, you know, they did, they kind of doubt the player development side. You don't know what the coaching relationship's like. So you look at Sierra Landervine, he had probably one of the most underwhelming seasons, you know, across the board in the Atlantic 10. Um, so, yeah, I, th- that's, I think that's definitely kind of a wild card X-Factor team um, in, in the Atlantic 10. Um, you know, I don't, I don't want to make you just start giving predictions across the board here, but, you know, like you said, you know, a big thing, you know, especially if, you know, there, there is a conference only season or whatever it is, however they do the selection preseason rankings could be more important this year than they have been before. Um, we've seen Richmond kind of come across, you know, the polls in a lot of different ways. Goodman's got them, I, I think like 13th in the country, whereas Rothstein has slew ahead of Richmond and both outside the top 30. Um, where, where do you look at this team, you know, kind of nationally um, across the board where they're coming in, entering the year? Yeah, I'm not sure I quite buy the, the top 15 Goodman hype, but I, I also know Goodman like tossed Austin P in the top 25, so I think Jeff is fun. But I think I, I see them as a top 30 team. I'm not sure I'll rank them. I, I don't have an up to date top 25, so I just I, I, I wouldn't you know, feel comfortable saying definitely they're top 25 or no, they're not. Mm-hmm. But you know, to me, they feel like a you know like an eight or a nine seed type of club. Maybe they can yeah. they have like a really special season. You know, I think I think the important thing to remember is like yes, Dayton. What Dayton did last year is not normal, but Dayton also came into the year like people weren't even sure if they were a bubble team, right? Like I, I thought they were probably going to be a tournament team. Not everyone was on that. So like like it's important to know that like things can swing pretty rapidly and VCU the opposite direction. So. Um, I, I, I do view Richmond as like a pretty safe tournament team in the preseason. And, and like you said, that's very important because preseason expectations, you'll have less opportunities to prove those expectations wrong, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think I, – I, I kind of agree with you. I do think the, third, the 13th in the country is a little bit overhyped. But I, I do think the one advantage they have is not only that they return everybody, but a lot of things, especially on the national scope, that's a little bit more unknown is that they're actually bringing three freshmen plus a plus a transfer from Tulane and Connor Crabtree. So it's going to be a deeper team. It's going to be, and we saw the effects of of how much being able to rest a guy like Grant Golton, having that depth helped him this year, especially on the defensive end um, versus the year before. But I, I always like, you know, I want to give the nod to the deeper experienced teams, especially when you're looking at nationally for March Madness, because we know how much that shows up in March versus a team like Kentucky that, you know, it could be so hot and cold with a young team like that. Um, that Kevin, that's pretty much it for me. Austin, you got anything you want to throw at him? Keep him on his toes. Ooh, keep him on his toes. That's a good one. But um, yeah, no, we were talking a little bit off air. Well, I guess it was off air after the Wi-Fi crash, but um, talking about the Northern the first Iowa. First or the second? I think it was the first one. There we go. The first one. But um, we're talking about the Northern Iowa game. That's a game – it just intrigues me. Northern Iowa is one of those programs that you don't have to necessarily really, really be into mid-major basketball to have heard of Northern Iowa and to know that there are always a team that will find a way into the tournament and maybe hit a half-court shot to win a tournament game every now and then, good a couple years ago. Um, how do you see the Richmond-Northern Iowa matchup going this year? Because I know a guy like A.J. Green, he was NBC Player of the Year guard, scores a lot of points. How do you see that matchup going so far this year? Um, well, first thing I think that's just like fantastic is just playing the game, right? I mean, there's so in so many cases, I think it's it's super important to as a mid major kind of control your own destiny and not rely on Kentucky being willing to buy a game. And so 
setting up a game against another at large caliber team, like that's that's fantastic. And so just from a matchup perspective, I think it's gonna be fascinating to watch uh, Golden versus uh, a guy like Austin Fife, who I think is one of the most underrated players in the country. Uh, Fife was a guy who, uh, you know, he only had, he, he averaged 11, 8, and 2, but, you know, he's so good around the rim. He protects, he can block shots too. You know, he's deceptively athletic. I mean, you know, I, I just view him as a guy that is, is one of the most underrated uh, players in the country. And so when you pair a big like that as a second option to AJ Green, it just makes things, things really exciting. So, not sure I have a prediction. I think it would be like a pick them in Vegas right now if they, they sliced them up. But uh, it's, a, it's a really exciting game for, for both teams and something that I think uh, every mid-major coach should be modeling things after. Well, I think that's pretty much it uh, from our end, Kevin. I appreciate you coming on, giving us your time, basically, you know, toughing it out through two Wi-Fi crashes on my end. But we're all used to it at this point. You know, every, everything's been out of whack. Um, really, you know, appreciate you coming on here, man. Love the work you do. Everyone go follow him on Twitter. Um, follow the College Basketball Central podcast. Um, what's your, what is your Twitter handle? It's uh, at CBB underscore central. I'm easy. At, at CBB underscore central. Go follow him on Twitter. Kevin, thanks so much, man. Yeah, appreciate it. Thank you, guys. It's a lot of fun. Thanks once again to our guy, Kevin Sweeney, for coming on the show today. Uh, make sure to check out his work with CBB Central uh, podcast, blog. Go check him out on Twitter. Um, as always, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at NoahGoldberg10, and you can follow Austin at AustinDaisy11. Check us out on there for exclusive spider basketball content, and also please make sure to go on Apple Podcast, give us a little subscribe and a five-star review. We'd greatly appreciate that. Um, so we will see you all next week with episode 16.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.